This morning, I'd just like to introduce briefly to you our speaker, Alex Pettit. Uh, Alex uh, has performed missionary service for many years overseas, was in Israel, was also in Turkey, probably in other places as well. But for the last three years, he's been the executive director and the head of World Witness, which is the mission's arm of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. You look at the world and you read the news today and you see how much turmoil the world is in, how many challenges the world faces, and these challenges are tremendously impacting uh, the mission fields of the world and missionaries and their, and their livelihoods and their well-being. We know that we preach, or I'm sorry, that we pray regularly for Andrew Brunson, uh, who's in prison in Turkey. Uh, Sebastian is with us today, Sebastian Benacourt, and he and the Thomases were in uh, he and his family and the Thomases were in Turkey for a number of years, and now, um, because of the situation there, he's out of Turkey, but he's getting ready to go minister to the Turkish people in Paris, in France, which is wonderful. Um, but it cause, it's a cause for a great deal of um, juggling. It, there's a great need for wisdom and for missionary executives, missional executives, to be fast on their feet and, um, and really sound in their judgment. And God has really placed uh, Alex Pettit in that place uh, at this time. And uh, so I know that it's a considerable burden that you carry, and we really appreciate the fact you're willing to do that. Alex was going to be with us last October preaching, but he fell with a sudden illness and had to have surgery. So it's just great to have him back now. You look to be in, uh, in wonderful health, and uh, may the Lord bless you as you minister to us. Yeah, sorry about missing uh, my last appointment with y'all. I got a really good excuse, and I'll, uh, I will share that just briefly. And honestly, part of the sermon today is born out of that. You'll, you'll note throughout the sermon that it doesn't feel like a sermon on missions, probably. But uh, in the end, we want to tie it back to the Lord's desire for our lives in missions. Let's read Romans 5, 1 through 5. You have your scriptures. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom has been given us. Lord, may the reading of this word and preaching of this word be to your glory. Amen. So, many years ago, I was at a wedding in Ireland, and a friend of mine was relaying a story he knew of, of an Israeli who had come to Ireland to do some touring in Belfast, which at that time the IRA was hot with activity, and he wandered, he wandered back into an alley and was in the wrong part of town at the wrong part of the day, and he was confronted by a gang of skinheads. And they take him, they throw him up against the wall, and they take out a knife, stick it to his throat, and says, Hey, are you, are you Catholic or are you Protestant? And the Jewish... Israeli thinks about it for a second. Um, well, I am Jewish. 
And they, they go back, they confer among themselves. They come back, to, all right then. Are you a Catholic Jew or are you a Protestant Jew? <laughs> <laughs> IRA conflict's relatively done. The Israeli conflict is still have distractions because of ISIS, but more or less underway. There's some theologians who track the fact that present-day Israel is still at war with its neighbors all the way back to you know, Esau and Jacob and Ishmael and all these family relations early on and the, even the lineage of Islam back into the Old Testament and how these potentially have been warring nations and that there was never going to be necessarily a earthly resolution to it, but God offered to the leaders and to some Jews the spiritual and eternal one, but even that by and large, by the leaders, Jewish leadership at least, was rejected. And in the Old Testament we see generation after generation of Jews, Hebrews, consistently rejecting God throughout their passage in Egypt, even to the settling of the land of Cana. And God sees all, knows all, so even when they had open, correct worship in terms of their, the temple worship, even then when they go home, God knew their hearts and knew the wickedness that was inside of them, just like he does us. And he knew that even though they sacrificed perhaps some of a perfect red heifer on the altar, they went home and had sexual relations that were improper, and to the point where we see that when Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and he comes down, the whole nation has, has descended into debauchery and has gone after other gods, and yet God forgave them and bring them back. Regardless, all of this has caused between God and his people a consistent, I don't know if you can call it growing, but a consistent gap. There is between God and his people wrath. It's an impenetrable wall of fury of a holy God against a people that cannot live up to the holiness, expectations of holiness. And God sees all, and he knows all, and we have this deep and desperate separation that the people of Israel experienced and that we experience here today for those of us who do not have the mediator of Jesus Christ in our lives. We see in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we were dead in our trespasses and sin in which we once walked following the course of this world, the prince of power of the air that was at work in the sons of disobedience in whom we all once lived, carrying out the passions of our flesh and the desires of our body and mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then we have the mediator that comes. And the wrath is assuaged. And we have entrance through the fury of God into his perfect love and his holiness by the garment of righteousness given to us by Jesus Christ. And God being rich in, continue on in Ephesians, and God being rich in love because, enriched in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even though while we are dead as trespasses, made us alive together in Jesus Christ. By grace you have been saved, and you were raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches and grace toward us in Christ Jesus. So now... This fury, this wrath, this separation, this war for the believer is over. We have an objective peace with God 
Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is an objective reality. We think of peace with God, though, typically in different terms. If I asked you right now, if I say the peace of God, the first thing that probably comes to your mind is something like John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives you. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. We think of a tender, loving peace, of a squishy hug from God Almighty that gives us calm amidst the storm. The first five chapters of Roman lead up to all the technical ways in Jesus Christ this is accomplished through justification. And later on we hear about sanctification, but now through that justification has come, we are at right, we are right with God, we have a peace with God. And this is word one today, peace with God. And for those of us who are a believer, I want you to take three seconds and to say in your mind, I have peace with God. You have an objective peace with God, not one that the world can take or shake. As I said, most of us think about a subjective peace with God, meaning that when we're in a difficult situation, we feel the Holy Spirit counsel us and give us calm. And sometimes we laugh because we don't even know what the next step will be in our lives, but we have a peace with God, a peace with God that surpasses all understanding, like we read in Philippians 4, 7. And how is that peace guarded? It guards your minds and hearts in Jesus Christ, so that peace of God cannot be taken away. This means that if you go out today and you're pulling out of the lot, you get hit by a car, you get amnesia and lose your mind, or it develops into some degenerative neurological disease, or perhaps later you get Alzheimer's in life. This means that if you wake up tomorrow for reasons inexplicable to, by scientists or by parents and you go absolutely mad, the peace that you have, the subjective peace, may or may not be there, but the reality, the objective peace, the union you would have you, God, will not suffer injury. Have you ever looked at aging parents or children who don't seem to have the wherewithal, the capacity to understand anymore the decisions they made in Jesus Christ, does it ever wear on you saying, where? Where is this person spiritually now? Where is this child spiritually now? And in those moments, I would ask that you reinvest your mind and heart in the words that we're reading this morning, that the peace with God isn't dependent on the state of our minds, which can just go crazy. It's dependent on the objective reality of a peace with God that is eternal in Jesus Christ. And that, no mental injury can take that away ever. And therefore, therefore, we can have hope. Now, if you're looking in your sermon, and the three words today, are the words you're to remember, are peace, suffering, hope. Hope is the third. I'm not skipping ahead, but Paul skips ahead in the passage here. He goes from peace with God to hope in the glory of God, right? 
Romans 5, 2. In him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul introduces the benefit right here, but he says there's a productive process for the increase of this hope. You have to get there through something, and it's ugly. Although Paul puts a positive spin on it, for the most part, most of us think of it as ugly, as difficult. And what is it? Romans 3, 5, 3 through 5, finishing the scripture. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces, here's the production part, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Word two is suffering, and even joyful suffering. What kind of suffering is this? Is it the kind that's just inadvertent, arbitrary? Paul even says boldly, you know, as believers, guess what? You might invite more suffering than you even intended had your life stayed the path. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to me that for those, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but you should also suffer for his sake. And the suffering Paul's often speaking of is the kind that's speaking of 2 Corinthians 6.4, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights. So the question that I have for us this morning, how does Paul rejoice in his sufferings with beatings and riots and calamities and sleep. You know, sleep for me, guys, I can take a lot, but if I can't get my sleep, it, it makes me lose my mind. I don't know how to hold the peace of God in those moments. But Paul says real clearly, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. I don't know about you guys, I don't always rejoice in my sufferings. You know, when you're in the midst of pain and suffering, whether it's an injury you've sustained whether it's someone's broken up with you, whether it's your own mental state seems to be deteriorating because of a disease that you can't control, whether depression or anxiety or schizophrenia, or whether you feel like the people or enemies are just around you and everyone's against you, you want to make it stop. Who doesn't want to make it stop? You just want it to end. And that's what the world does, especially the Western world. The Western world wants any type of suffering to end as quickly as possible. But Paul doesn't mention it. You know, Chinese pastors, when they're coming to the Lord, they don't ask always to be rescued from their suffering. Rather, they would stand with God through it. You don't hear them about, Lord, take away the hardship. Lord, let me be a witness for your hardship through it. You see, Paul here, the world, right, the world wants suffering to stop, and we get that. If we want it to stop too, if there's something that that doesn't have to do with abandoning our faith in Jesus Christ, we're we're okay with stopping. We're okay with medication. I am okay with medication. Trust me. But Paul here was saying, I can rejoice in my sufferings because my goal isn't to end the suffering. My goal is in Philippians 1.12. I want you to know brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. His goal is rooted beyond the physical, the painful or emotional physical suffering and is rooted and planted squarely well beyond this understanding into eternity. 
And that is why he can suffer, because he is rejoicing that goals are still being met. Not a goal to end the suffering, but a goal to advance the gospel. And that's happening, and therefore, he can smile. And as you know, often meeting any goal that's worthwhile requires sacrifice. Have you ever run a marathon, or half marathon, or 10K, or 5K? If you've never done a marathon, it's kind of hard to understand why anyone would do a marathon. And some of you have witnessed people running marathons. They look like the walking, limping, trotting, jogging dead. Just towards the end, they're just, they're sick with pain. They really, you know, if they say that when, you, when you're finishing a marathon, especially people out of shape, you take those kind of vital signs, and it's like the near-death vital signs. And they're going along, and maybe you've been at a race, maybe you've handed out water or gels before, and some guy comes alongside, and you're like, Man, you don't look so good. How, how do you feel? And the guy said, I think I'm going to throw up. You know, I, I'm dying. Like, well, you want to quit? No, this is awesome. <laughs> Just give me a power gel or something or an orange slice. Come on. Weirdo. All right. Finishes the race, vomits everywhere, holds his hand up like Rocky. Get it, though? His goal wasn't rooted in stopping the suffering. It was in finishing the race. Paul's rejoicing in suffering wasn't rooted in getting out of prison necessarily, although we recognize for our dear brother Andrew, we would all love that. It's rooted in his proclamation of the gospel and the advancement of it in those goals that pulled his mental, emotional, not even his spiritual state was pulled by the spirit out of it and rooted it firmly into eternity. And that's great. That's great for advancing the gospel. Who, doesn't, who, who disagrees with that? But what about in your own life when Paul talks about calamity? Now, calamity may or may not be rooted in a witness of the gospel, but it is rooted in an unforeseen disaster that befalls you, perhaps like Job, one that doesn't seem to have any spiritual implication for anyone other than yourself. I'll tell you, I was supposed to be here in the fall, and uh, in late September, I was out for a run. I was attending a conference in Louisville, Kentucky, and we just had arrived there that day, and I was going out for a run. It was about a six-mile run. I was four miles into it, and I felt literally, I felt a, like a, someone that came up and thumped me in the chest, and I just kind of stopped for a second, and I felt in my head very lightheaded all of a sudden, like I all of a sudden had been finishing a very long race. I felt blood feeling like it was coming in from my extremities, and my hands started to feel clammy and weak, and I was dizzy. And I stopped, and I just started walking, and I tried to run a little bit. Every time I tried to run, I got super dizzy and nearly passed out, so I just walked and ran and slowly got back to the hotel, and I sat there and let, it, let the situation just kind of progress, not sure what was going on. I felt, took a shower, felt a little better, went to dinner that night with my colleagues, came back to the room, still felt weird, and then... Around 11.30, chest pains began, and I said, well, I've heard that's bad. And so I called my wife. She's like, yeah, chest pain's bad. So I, I Googled chest pains. And, and then I went to Google Maps and Googled chest pain center, and I found a four-and-a-half-star chest pain center. It was, I mean, that's pretty good, four-and-a-half stars. I was willing, it was out of a five. And so I was prideful. I was like, I'm not going to call an ambulance. I called an Uber. He got there like that. I'll tell you, Ubers, I think, are a lot faster than ambulances, by the way. Got, Uber got there. Took me to the hospital, took him a while to 
root around, look for the cause, and it took about five or six hours after what's called an echocardiogram, they, uh, they found out what had happened to my heart. I had an undiagnosed defect that had instantaneously um, ripped a, a valve open, and the valve wasn't going to close by itself. It wasn't due to lifestyle. It wasn't due to stress. Uh, it wasn't due to the impending fear of preaching here at Atonement, <laughs> although maybe that could have played a small part. It was just, it's just one of those things, the doctor said, but it required immediate open-heart surgery. And I was scared, guys. I was scared out of my mind. My family was seven hours away. I called them. I couldn't get my words out. And I said, I need you here. Jamie and she, of course, made arrangements, put the kids to my parents as quickly as possible, jumped in the car and made her way up. Matt Miller, my pastor, actually made it, went up, came up as well a little bit later. But until that time, I had about nine hours to consider my situation, and uh, as they got ready to take me into surgery, um, I was progressively, my, my anxiety was growing progressively. And they said, do you want something for the anxiety? I'm like, give me anything. <laughs> so they gave me this beautiful little pill called Xanax, and that worked, that worked great. I still felt fearful, though, even though I wasn't kind of flopping around quite as much. And Heiko Berkland, who is the mission developer for our church, for our agency, came in, and he's our member care guy. He says, what can I do for you? Because at that point, I tried to pick up my Bible. I didn't want to read my Bible. You ever got to the point where you're so scared or so freaked out, you don't, you don't even want to read the Bible. You just, you just you kind of pick it up, you kind of scan it, and you put it back down, but your mental state is so fragile. And Heiko says, what can I do? I said, well, read my Bible to me. I can't even, I can't even think to do it myself. He says, what do you want me to read? And I said, Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search at my path and my lying down are queen with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in before your high and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too high for me. I cannot obtain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I make my way to heaven, you are there. If I send a shield, you are there. If I take to the wings in the morning or ride to the furthermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall guide me. Your right hand shall hold me fast. God was whispering to me the assurity of his presence. Despite the situation, he was there. He was with me. Through a godly man, Heiko Berkland, reading to me godly promises and godly truths. You know, at that moment, I had no, I was, I had no idea if I was being a witness to the nurses, the doctors. I was probably, probably like, yeah, this guy's freaking out more than anybody else. Get, it, get him to Xanax or something. But I know in those moments, there may have been no gospel advancement for the people around me. But for my life, perhaps there was. And this is some other reason that we might be able to rejoice in suffering. Because of the gospel advancement in our own lives. As God assures us that he is with us, whispers his good news to us through it. And we know that this produces endurance. And then that produces character. And character produces hope. The advancement of the gospel to others, the advancement of the gospel in our lives, produces in us hope that does not put us to shame. You remember earlier how I said the peace with God is an objective peace, not one based on whether or not you feel a peace with God at that day. Sometimes... 
you feel double guilty because you're supposed to have a peace with God. You're, maybe you're already angry at God for something. You're supposed to have a peace with God, but you don't feel a peace with God. You're like, oh, no, I've lost the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, but it's supposed to guard my mind and heart in Christ Jesus. Where is it? Oh, it's still there, but it's preserved in an eternal state, not in your mental state, but in an eternal one. Now, the Bible teaches us consistently that those of us who are believers should be able to experience a peace that is a one of calm, subjective as it may be, calm, even despite the difficulties. And those who are very mature believers, we often find, despite the storms around them, do have an incredible amount of peaceful countenance. But like peace, hope is not dependent necessarily on your hope in God. It is rooted in God's hope. Why? Because we are, it does not put us to shame. We read in the end of Romans 5, 4 and 5. The hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It is the Spirit that secures our hope, not our own hopeful self or hopelessness self. It is God himself. I ask you a challenge now. Decide now. When calamity strikes, how will you respond? Some of you don't want to answer that question because it feels insincere. You've thought about somebody put a gun to my head in life and they asked me would I renounce Jesus Christ. You all want to say, I would like to say, that's how you start the sentence, right? I would like to say, but you don't really know. Can I offer you a challenge? Can I, say, can I just say, you know, that's kind of pride. It's not that you're trying to be insincere or not trying to save face, but can I just say, make a decision now? How about it? If someone decides to come in here today and holds us all hostage and says, renounce your faith in Jesus Christ, go ahead and tell yourself right now, what are you going to say? No. Don't waffle. Don't vacillate. No, I will not renounce my Lord. Just say it. No. No. Then, think about when tragedy strikes, when you lose a child, when you lose a parent, when you lose yourself. Think about it now. Will you renounce the Lord? Will you lose hope? Will you vacillate? You might. Hey, it's okay. God doesn't lose hope. He doesn't vacillate. Your peace of God, it's secure in eternity because it's guarded. It's guarded by Jesus Christ and the Spirit tells us so. And it's okay. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Now, this morning, it doesn't sound like I've talked very much about missions. I'm sorry. We're, we, had no, we wanted stats. We wanted to know where to focus our war prayers. Let's talk about it two seconds, then I'll be finished. 1.6 billion people haven't heard the gospel. Orphans. There's poverty. There's needs. Probably 200 feet from here. 2,000 miles from here, 10,000 miles from here, 12,000 miles from here. I wanted to remind us today that you do not suffer needlessly like so many people around, around this church and overseas. You do not suffer needlessly. You suffer with eternal security in mind and a God that is with you, as we read in Psalm 139, through every step of the way. You do not suffer needlessly. They do. Overseas, they do. Because they've never heard the word of Jesus Christ that has been spoken to you 
this day and many days before and many days to come. They have not had a missionary come to deliver that good news. I believe that dreams are happening, that Muslims are receiving visions. But it must be a missionary to deliver the word of God to explain what all this means to them, that they might be saved. And that takes boots on the ground. That takes you to be a part of ending the needless eternal suffering. And I'll tell you guys, I think there's a reason today that many, that denominationally speaking, not just ours but others, we have had a bit of a decline in terms of recruiting for missions. It's because we're trying to end the earthly suffering as quick as possible. And missions overseas feels like a lot of suffering sometimes. And it can be. Sometimes it's just a great adventure that is, that is awesome. But it can involve discomfort and suffering. I'll finish with one last little story and be finished. So when um, I was having my heart thing, the heart thing was over, and I, I, I survived, by the way, uh, <laughs> still here. I was told that a few weeks into my recovery, I might suffer depression. And I'd heard of this before. I've heard of heart patients, something about being on the heart-lung bypass machine or handling of your heart. They don't, they don't really know what triggers it. But a, certain, a fairly high percentage of people experience it. I'm just like, well, that's cool. I can handle that. Suff- depression. Hadn't had, hadn't had depression before. That should be interesting. Oh, my Lord, guys. Oh, that is a darkness I've never known. Just to sit there. I, it, 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 I remember when it first hit me, about three weeks into my recovery, all of a sudden, about three in the afternoon, I felt this welling and this dark pulling inside of me that just kept growing. It was just kind of wanting to, it was kind of wanting to burst out, but it, 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 I felt so much anxiety. But all, all I could do was sit there like this on an, an easy chair. I, could, I, I couldn't move because I was scared that any move would cause it just to kind of explode. The only way I could relieve it was by uncontrollable weeping. That's, it just, I just started crying. I couldn't stop. And, and my wife's a pretty tough cookie. She's an she's a OB nurse, and she, she has told me that, you know, if uh, you came in with your arm cut off, we would just sew that stinker back on. But, but, that, <laughs> but depression was hard for her. It, it freaked her out because she didn't know what to do with a, a weeping man who, no matter what happened, just kept crying and crying. I didn't know that. I couldn't stop it. I was like, come on, you're a man. You're a man. You're a man. You know. <laughs> I couldn't do anything. I went outside, looked at the blue. I was told sunshine. I went out and looked at the sunshine. Oh, the sun's, the sun's so beautiful. You know, just kept crying and crying. I laugh about it, but it was awful. And I said, Jamie, let's research a pill. Come on, let's, let's, get, let's, get, let's get moving with this. And she, she does her, you know, we Google diagnose it and stuff. And, and she's like, oh, wow, hey, yeah, you can take some pills. I'm like, oh, let's go order some pills. That's a good idea. Because it'll take two weeks to start working. I was like, oh, it's a really long time. All right, well, what's next? She goes, well, most people are over this in two weeks. <laughs> and I was, I was like, hey, no matter what, I got two weeks. I was like, wait, no, I got four weeks, because if in two weeks I'm not over it, and then I got two more weeks for the drug to start working. So she's like, come on, come on. She said, come on, we can do this. I'll be with you. Let's get through this. Two weeks passed. Like the sun came back out in my life. It was gone. 
couldn't believe it. I don't know if I was psychologically projecting this deadline onto myself. Maybe the science holds true, but it was gone. You know, if I'd taken the pills, that's okay. I wouldn't be bothered by that. I don't think I would feel ashamed in any way. Pills are good. They serve a definitive purpose in our medication, our medical system. That's fine. But it passed. I tell you that story for one reason. Some of you in here, the Lord has called to the mission field, right? And you think about the suffering, the difficulties that could come with that. And you think, when will it end? It'll be longer than two weeks, but God gives us a guarantee. He says to us, one life. Give me, give me one life. And then it'll end. Then it'll be over. No more tears, no more suffering, no more need for Xanax, no more need for anything else. You will have me fully. In this life, I give you peace that passes all understanding. To get to hope, you will have suffering that can be joyful. And in the end, you will have me. Those of us called to the mission field, don't try to make the suffering stop. See through it to an eternal God who gives us an eternal hope in Jesus Christ. And consider even today committing yourself to that call. And those of you in here, most of you who are not called to that life or that lifestyle, consider praying for someone in here who you know is. I gave this challenge last time. If there's someone in this room that you understand potentially has a call to missions in their life, and it's not you and you're sure of that, begin to pray for that person. And in two years, here's my challenge to our con this congregation, in two years, give me a name. Give me a name of someone that you think may be called to long-term missions. I've given that challenge to the World Witness Board, so they're on it. And I'd be delighted if Atonement would consider taking up that challenge as well. You've already had missionaries, the Mebergs and Nairi and others come out of this church. You got momentum. Let's keep going. Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, a suffering. Man, I don't know if I believe that often, God, but we do. Because we know that it produces uh, endurance. Perdurance, endurance produces character. Character gives us hope that will never, ever disappoint us, God. So we ask this morning that we not always seek to end the suffering, though sometimes it's fine but we rather look to see through it to our eternal Lord Jesus Christ and we meet goals, we knock them out of advancing the gospel in others' lives and in our own for the sake of your kingdom and for your glory. We pray and ask these things. Amen.